May only truth be spoken and only truth received. Amen. From tonight through to the middle of August, the lectionary is going to have us reading from the book of Genesis, wrestling through a series of stories of the patriarchs and matriarchs of the biblical faith. We're called to listen to these texts precisely because these people are our forebears. Our ancestors, our mothers and fathers, and so their stories are also our stories. Sometimes the characters are oh so recognizably like us in their humanness. We see this in the laughter of Sarah or in the mixed emotions of Joseph when he's presented with the opportunity to reconcile with the brothers who earlier had sold him into slavery. Yet, for all of their familiarity on those points, their world still remains an utterly strange one to us. Tempting though it can be, we do well not to try to gloss over the differences between their world and ours, or to soften the edges on these stories, try to make them fit our expectations and assumptions, No, rather than making these stories suit our worldview, we need to enter the imaginative landscape that is their world, what Karl Barth called the strange new world within the Bible. And across the 3,000-year divide, stand alongside of these characters as they contend with a God they are just beginning to discover particularly true of a story like the one we heard read aloud tonight, the Akedah, or the binding of Isaac. I'm not sure there's a more troubling story in the whole of the biblical tradition. In spite of all the attempts to rationalize, justify, or even piously sentimentalize it, sometime later, God tested Abraham, the story begins, and already some modern listeners will begin to bristle a little bit. God tested Abraham? As Walter Brueggemann notes, in our sophistication, we may find the notion of testing primitive. We're not convinced we want a testing God, just a providing one, a gracious one, How odd, Brueggemann then adds, that settled, complacent believers pray regularly, lead us not into temptation. As the story continues, let it shake you from any signs of that settled complacency then. God said to him, Abraham, here I am, Abraham replied. Then God said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love. Go to the region of Moriah, sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains I will tell you about. This, this is how God tests Abraham? Remember, this is the son born to Sarah long after she's given up hope of ever having a child. This is the son named Isaac, which means he laughs. 
in recognition of the audacity of life coming out of barrenness, in recognition of Sarah's laughter at the very thought that she'd be pregnant, the one whose birth has been celebrated as the fulfillment of the promise that Abraham and Sarah would in fact be the first parents of a great nation. Notice, too, the careful choice of wording. Abraham, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love. Sacrifice him. Kill him. Kill the promise you've been given. Kill the boy you love. Well, you heard how the story unfolds from that point. The next morning, Abraham gets up early and begins to put it all in motion. It's not as if he can just at the moment the command comes grit his teeth and commit the act right then and there either. It takes three days to travel to Moriah. Provisions need to be carried. Wood needs to be cut for the fire. The traveling party includes not only Abraham and Isaac, but two servants as well. This is a premeditated action he's prepared to do. God knows what the old man thought during those traveling days. This much is clear. Abraham's ready to go through with it. And just as he's about to bring the knife down, he stopped. But the angel of the Lord called out to Abraham from heaven, Abraham, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Do not lay a hand on the boy, he said. Do not do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. Abraham looked up, and there in a thicket he saw a ram caught by its horns. He went over and took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of his son. And so Abraham called the place, The Lord Will Provide." There are different ways in which the story has been read and interpreted. One being that it prohibits definitively any practice of child sacrifice in the faith of ancient Israel. Many of the cultures of the ancient Near East did observe those practices, and so Abraham's willingness to do the same should not be so nearly so surprising or appalling as we might at first think. Abraham is prepared to do that which others in his world had done. But then at the last minute, the child is spared. A ram is offered in its place. The ancient Israelite practice of animal sacrifice is declared sufficient, and child sacrifice, by inference, is out. In a Christian understanding, animal sacrifice will in time also be declared out, null and void, allowable by God in a more ancient world, but ultimately revealed as unnecessary. This same Christian interpretive tradition also received the story of the binding of Isaac in light of a larger gospel proclamation. As Catherine Schiffendecker observes in her comments on this passage, the willingness of Abraham to sacrifice his son became for early Christians one of the greatest examples of his faith. By faith, Abraham, when put to the test, offered up Isaac. 
He considered the fact that God is able even to raise someone from the dead. Here, Schiffendecker is quoting from the book of Hebrews. And then she continues, In the history of Christian interpretation, Genesis 22 has continued to be understood as a story of faith against all odds and as a foreshadowing of God's self-giving in Jesus Christ. That takes us so far, right? On the one hand, you have this story of this, this almost audacious faith of Abraham prepared to do what he's told. On the other hand, you see it as a kind of a foreshadowing of the thing that God will ultimately do with his own child, Jesus. It works, and yet, both the larger Genesis narrative and the longer Jewish interpretive tradition resist too easy a resolution. From the moment of his calling in Genesis 12, Abraham had interacted with God in a way that can only be described as conversational, dialogical. They speak almost as friends do God and Abraham, and at times Abraham even debates with God, argues with God, Yet after this episode with the binding and near sacrifice of Isaac, after Abraham has been tested like this, there is not a single instance in the Bible of Abraham speaking with God. Almost as if this testing had come at the cost of that relationship. Similarly, The incident that immediately follows this story, the story of the binding of Isaac, is the death of his mother, Sarah. In Genesis, it's simply recorded as a matter of fact. And the big challenge is how they're going to bury Sarah, where? But the long Jewish rabbinical interpretive tradition has often read this as being a death brought about by a broken heart and broken trust. Grief stricken by her husband's willingness to do such a thing and by the very fact of God asking such a thing, Sarah simply gives up and dies. That's in the Jewish interpretive tradition, but we do well to pay attention to those insights. Then later in the narrative, when Isaac's son Jacob, remember Isaac, the boy who was almost killed, when his son Jacob speaks of God, he does so by speaking of, quote, the God of my father, the God of Abraham, and the fear of Isaac. Should we be surprised that the name for God that Jacob has learned from his father Isaac is the fear? It's a complex story. It's a story that announces that God tests and God provides. Yet in between and after there is a cost, a kind of wounding really. The deeper relationship between God and this family will not be fully restored until the third generation, until Jacob. 
And even there, the high point of the rebuilding of the relationship between God and this family is the wounding of Jacob. There is, in short, much to wrestle with in these elusive stories, and overly neat resolutions will do us no good. And lest we too easily lean towards saying that they're ancient stories, they're Old Testament stories, they're Old Covenant stories, and we're a New Testament, New Covenant people, I offer this from Paul's first letter to the Corinthians. Paul writes, No testing has overtaken you that is not common to everyone. God is faithful, and God will not let you be tested beyond your strength. So far, so good. We'll not be tested beyond our strength, though I'd hasten to add that there are people, some sitting here, who might tell you that they're not all that convinced on that point. It's how Paul concludes that should give us real pause. As he writes, But with the testing, God will also provide the way out so that you may be able to endure it. With the testing. I'm not entirely sure what you mean here, Paul. And I confess that I struggle to make sense of a God who tests with one hand and provides with the other. It's hard. In the meantime... As I wrestle with Paul and I wrestle with Abraham and all of us wrestle with these Genesis texts over the summer, in the meantime, I need to pay attention to Paul's insistence that God is faithful. I'm also thinking that at the moment in the liturgy when we pray those words, lead us not into temptation, this night at least we should transcend all settled complacency. And we should pray them with a new depth of urgency and a deep vulnerability. Feel the meaning in them tonight when you say, lead us not into temptation, Lord. Just as Abraham had earlier argued with God, and Jacob will later wrestle with God through a long, dark night, when faced with such stories, with such texts that are beyond easy understanding, we too must be prepared to contend and to wrestle, especially with the things that unsettle us. It was the way of our forebears, after all, and from them we have much to learn. In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.